0: Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the National Security Industrial Base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert, Lauren Badula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and special operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula here with my co-host, Hondo Gertz. And we're so excited to have with us Michael Morrell for today's episode. Michael was a former career intelligence analyst and served as deputy director of the CIA from 2010 to 2013, which was notably when U.S. intelligence located and killed Osama bin Laden. Michael served twice as acting director, first in 2011 and then from 2012 to 2013. So lots of interesting stories and perspectives to share with our listeners today.
1: Welcome, Michael. Glad to have you here. It's uh, great to be here. Um, I just need to tell one story that let your listeners know who you're talking to here. So I was acting director twice, Um, Once when I was acting director, the second time, my wife and I went out to dinner, not too far from where we're sitting right now, and we were in big armored SUVs, and we pulled into this restaurant parking lot, and there was a guy standing against the wall, and he was looking at us. You know, he's trying to figure out who this is. Is this Michelle Obama? You know, is this Secretary Kerry? Who is this? And he was on my wife's side of the car, and when she got out, he said to her, is that somebody important? And without missing a beat, my wife said, no, he's just acting important. (laughs) <laughs> so that's what you got here today
2: yeah or or she could have said she was really the important one so and I think either would have been. so so Michael we'll talk a lot about your uh, your s- super interesting career and accomplishments and whatnot but I'd actually like to start a little bit at the beginning uh, as opposed to you know all the great things you did late in career what got you what drove you into national security how did you you know, tell our listeners how you got involved, even in the agency, what brought you there and kind of what set you, what set, it, set your trajectory on this journey?
1: It's very different than, than what you see today. Um, I spend a lot of time with kids who want to work at CIA and each of them is absolutely passionate about serving their country. Um, I was a bit different. Um, I was an econ major. Um, I fell in love with economics. Um, I thought economics explained not only the economy but human behavior as well. Uh, and what I wanted to do was go to grad school, get a PhD, and teach. That's what I wanted to do. And I'd applied to a bunch of grad schools. I'd gotten in, and I had a professor who I believe did some work for the agency, and he encouraged me to apply. Um, I never could figure out whether he did. He died or he died early in life, so I couldn't figure it out. But I did send an application to CIA, and they invited me to Washington D.C. And here I am, this this kind of lower middle class kid from Akron, Ohio. Um, never had been to Washington D.C., so I'm going to go visit the nation's capital on the taxpayers' dime and go visit the CIA for two days. And in those two days, they they blew me away. They blew me away in terms of the mission, you know, of keeping the country safe um, from this very unique perspective of of objectively telling policymakers what you think is happening in the world, you know, not in any way driven by politics or policy. So that was very attractive. Um, the capabilities that they talked about, which were in limited in terms of what they could tell me, but they were, the ones they could tell me about were pretty impressive. And then the third thing that really struck me was um, how nice everybody was and how, what, what the sense of family, there was, there was a really strong sense of family, I could feel it. And on the second day of interviews, um, to a person, the five people I interviewed on the second day, to a person, um, they said, "You know this grad school thing you keep talking about? Um, you know to everybody yesterday. Well, if you come work here, we'll take care of that. We'll send you back to school." Um, and so I, you know, I said yes and didn't look back, and and uh, and that's how I got there. Now, why I stayed, if you know, for thirty three years, is exactly the reason why. I'm talking to the kids I'm talking to now because there's such deep meaning um, in the job. There's such deep meaning, I think, in national security and contributing to it. Um, And I, you know, there wasn't a single day in my 33-year career that I didn't want to go to work. I mean, how many people can say that? I look forward to Mondays, not Fridays. How many people can say that? Um, So I was extraordinarily lucky, and that's why I stayed. Awesome.
0: And Michael, so many of our listeners, I think, probably also are interested in your podcast. And it's so fun to have you on the other side of the table here, telling stories. (laughs) (laughs) And one of my favorite stories is really that you spent September 11th, 2001 with President Bush. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that day and particularly how it changed your perspective on how the intelligence community works with the private sector.
1: Yeah. Boy, that day is uh, seared into my memory. um and I could take you know I could take s- several hours in talking about it, but to answer your specific question, Lauren, I don't think it did affect the way I thought about um, the role of the government and the private sector because the the appropriate response to nine eleven was not greater collaboration between the government and the private sector, it was appropriate collaboration within um, the government right within um, um, executive branch agencies. Um, that was a deficiency prior to 9-11. That was a big focus afterwards. But I will say this. Um, here's how I pull the two together, I think. Uh, one of the lessons of 9-11 is that the government has to respond, and we as a society have to respond to strategic warnings. You know, a strategic warning was there for years that bin Laden wanted to attack us in the United States and was building the capability to do so. The strategic warning was there for a pandemic. We just didn't know when. We knew there was going to be one. We didn't know when. We weren't prepared for it, right? And, you know, to a certain extent, we are, we're facing that that at this very moment, right? We face a strategic challenge, I think is the best way to put it, from from really from China. You can throw, throw Russia in there, but it's really China at the end of the day. And I don't think we're galvanized enough as a society Right to respond to that. So the lesson of 9/11 really is, is you can't wait for the tactical wake-up moment, right? You can't wait for China's invasion of Taiwan, right? You got to move a lot sooner than that moment. And so it's pay attention to strategic warnings.
2: So building on that really a thoughtful observation, I think uh, you know we work together. Uh, I was at Special Operations Command. We work hand in hand with the CIA. Shared technology, shared ideas, shared blood on the battlefield. Um, how do you see that scaling into a much more strategic challenge versus, you know, one might argue that challenge was, you know, not at the same scale. What's your sense of both intergovernment and then government with industry? How do we, if we get society, you know, to realize the strategic uh, imperative, what's, you know, how do we supersize it to really get everybody lined up and working together? Any thoughts on that?
1: So that's really hard. It's super hard. Um, and I think it starts, it has to start with a strategy, right? A U.S. government strategy for dealing with China. Uh, I don't believe we have one. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of Tony Blinken. And I've read Tony's uh, speech at George Washington University where he lays out the strategy. I've read it four times. I don't see a strategy. You know, a strategy has to start with what your objectives are. And I, I, I can't find that anywhere. What, what, what do we want, right, in terms of this relationship with China? What are we trying to achieve? Um, I don't see that anywhere. Um, and I think you know it's not there, I think, because it's really hard because there are competing constituencies in the United States for what we should do with regard to China. There's a whole bunch of companies who really rely on the Chinese market right, for their future. know um, there's, there's industry I know well um, that is a traditional manufacturing u s. manufacturing industry. And seventy-five percent of the increase in the demand for their product over the next twenty-five years is going to be in two countries, China and India. And so they're all in about a good relationship with China, right? They don't—they don't want tension in the relationship. Um, there's other people who want to compete, right? Um, and 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 so there's not a consensus here. So I think the first thing is the government's got to figure out what do we want. And I think you know at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves the question. What does China want in the world and what are we willing to accept? Because we can't stop them. This is not containing, you know, somebody like we contained the Soviet Union. You know, what are we willing to live with and what aren't we? And go and talk to them about that. You know, this, this absolutely, all the running room room in the world for you guys. This, no, and we're going to push back every chance we get on that with our allies, right? Um, And I think, to get to the society as a whole question that you're asking about, once you have a strategy, then the government has to articulate it. You know, Time after time after time after time, you have to talk about it. Um, if you think about all of the discussions after 9-11 about what the United States needs to do to respond to this very significant threat that we were facing from Islamic extremists, um, and the, the, the amount of presidential airtime given to that and think about how much presidential airtime we've actually had about what's the challenge that China, fa- that, that China you know, creates for us. Um, why is that important to you, no matter where you live in the United States? And here's what we're going to do to respond to it. And here's what we need you to do, you to do, you to do different aspects of society, right? There, there's got to be that kind of communication between the government and the rest of society. I think it's pretty simple, but it's hard to it's hard to do.
2: Yeah, sometimes the simplest or the most challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And one
0: of the reasons we started this show is to have more discussions about the threat that you really zeroed in on, which is China in this case. And we look at the collaboration between the high-tech sector and the national security community and how we can make that a bit more effective. And uh, the CIA recently went through a reorganization. From the outside, it looks to me a bit more approachable for Companies who've never done business in the space to not necessarily have to go through their investment arm, Incutel, as the only avenue to have conversations. Uh, but there's a new CTO position now and a new mission center de- dedicated to technology. So I was wondering, Michael, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that reorganization and how it might change collaboration with particularly the high tech sector.
1: Yeah, so if you look at the media reports on the reorganization, the big focus was on the China Mission Center. Um, and that was kind of a no-brainer. Um, it didn't, re- didn't really matter whether you had a China mission center or not. You were going to do China, right? China from an operational perspective, China from an analytic perspective. What the media really missed was the changes that were designed to improve the agency's ability to bring in and interact with the high-tech sector. So as you mentioned, right, a new, a, a new mission center, a CTO, um, an ability to at least they talked about it, I don't know where this stands now, but the ability to bring in on on, on a short-term basis um, folks with, with high-tech skills, right, who might not want to spend a career but are willing to spend, you know, a year or so. So I actually think that the reorganization is much more about technology and the agency's relationship to technology in the private sector than it is about China, right? Um, and it, it just didn't get the attention. And that the decisions the director made about technology were really driven by you know number one the agency recognizing that it was doing a very poor job bringing in technology into the building uh, technology that they needed to uh, to do their mission better right of, of of spying and and analyzing to protect their operations against the technology that the adversaries have right that's that's second reason you need te- technology in the building. Um, and then the third was a realization that if you're going to understand foreign technology developments the way that we understand foreign weapons developments, right, or foreign political or foreign economic developments, that if you're really going to understand foreign tech developments, you need a pretty intimate relationship with the U.S. private sector because if, you know, ask the question, who in the U.S. government or who in the United States has the best, sense of where China's 5G capabilities are. Right? It's not anybody in the US government. It's not anybody in a think tank. Right? It's the CTO of of Verizon, right? Or the CTO of Qualcomm. It's that person who probably has the best understanding. So the CIA better be talking, right? The CIA analysts, right? Not to collect information here. You just go talk to these people. Um, and you know the realization that if you're going to keep the president informed on where the adversaries are in this dual use in these dual use technologies right that can be used for all sorts of good reasons but also can be used for intelligence purposes and and military purposes you're going to need the private sector to help you understand that so kinda put all those things together and it was a realization on the part of director burns that boy, we have a long way to go here and you know back to your back to your opening premise I hope they're making progress Right, my sense is that it's it's going slow, as things do in government, you know, and you hope that it builds over time a momentum, right? But I think it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a bit of a slow crawl here. Yeah,
2: it's interesting what they say. The only person who likes to change is a baby with a wet diaper. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, but I do it's, know it's, it's it's tough. You know, yeah. it's really challenging to. To lead transformative change.
1: But I do know actually how easy it is to drive change at CIA. People ask, you know, did Leon Panetta actually make a difference in our hunt for bin Laden? Because we never stopped looking, right? This idea that we had stopped looking and then Obama had to restart us. that's, That's politics. That's not true, right? But Leon did make a huge difference. And here's how he made the difference. You know, when he came in and he said, can I have a briefing on, you know, where we are on finding bin Laden? You know, he's like, The briefers came in, the the briefers gave the briefing. And at the end of the briefing, he said, great. Thank you. I want you to come back every week and tell me how you're doing. You don't want to come back and say nothing happened last week. Right? So that meeting, that accountability meeting, right? With the director drives change. And, you know, you know, I, I would encourage Bill, if he's listening to this podcast. Um, I would encourage Bill, if you want to drive change in terms of how the agency is is interacting with the private sector, right? Have a have a weekly or biweekly meeting with the CTO and your other key technology folks, and say, okay, where are we? Right, and I want you to come tell me, you know, once a month or once every two weeks. I want you to come tell me how we're doing. That will drive change.
2: Absolutely. You know, one um, one thing when uh, Joe Votel and I put out a piece kind of on where do we need to take what we call now the industrial base. We really kind of promoted this idea of an industrial network, which I think had two facets. One is a sense of urgency, as you just mentioned. And the second is a sense of, of networking and how do we make more out of the pieces we have? And I would, if I look back on that time, at least speaking from the special ops side, the amount of networking and sharing and was, you know, got restarted and re-energized to a level I haven't seen. And I think we've built on that. What's your sense of the government continuing to drive that networking and as opposed to everybody replicating their own special stovepipe, pipe um, and, and even, even, in industry, you think that's a possible approach to it to get more out of the assets we have, or do you think that's a flawed approach? Yeah. So
1: this is, this is a, you know, this is a big question, right? This is a big question. So I think the government probably has, two responsibilities and then i want to put a really big caveat on it so the first responsibility is the government should make it as easy as possible for companies to do business with the government particularly as it relates to technology because it just moves too slow moves too slow in the ic it moves too slow in dod it just moves too slow that's one um and, and there's a lot of reasons for that two is i think the government has a responsibility in the areas that really matter to national security, so those 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 technology areas that really matter to national security, the government should. I think the government has responsibility, and I think it should help reduce the risk of investment in those areas. Um, and what we just did on semiconductors for is an example of that, right? That fifty some billion dollars will actually help reduce the risk of investing in semiconductors in the U.S. That's a good thing, um, and and there needs to be. There, there needs to be more of that. The caveat is this. Um, that's industrial policy. And we have to be really, really careful. So, so every time that you engage in industrial policy, every time you make a decision like the CHIPS Act, you are affecting the allo- now I'm talking like an economist, you are affecting the allocation of resources and you are reallocating in them in a less efficient way you are reducing the standard of living. So we better be darn sure that when we decide to go down the road of an industrial policy, that we're really doing it for national security. And because, because I'm, I I guarantee you one of the things that's going to happen is a bunch of companies are going to line up and say, we're national security, right? We should, we should get a subsidy like, like the, the semiconductor manufacturers just got, right? Hand it over. So, um, we got to make sure that that doesn't happen. We have to make sure that we embrace, and I spend a lot of time on college campuses, and I'm sometimes shocked by how how um, how kids think about capitalism, but I believe it's um, next to the Enlightenment, the greatest force for good in the history of mankind. And I actually think we need to embrace capitalism and let's not let's not throw capitalism away. Because we have a national security need, let's be very careful in the decisions we make about the industrial policies we choose.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a that's a really interesting um, approach. That right, you don't want to out China, China. You know, we want to leverage all the strength we have yeah. in, in the marketplace and in that. And it's it, it's really challenging to find that right balance between uh, too much or too little. But I do want to go back to one of your points. You know, twenty years ago, you could have seen the fact that our chip man capability was eroding and we let everything off source. Is there a sense in in the intelligence community to also provide that strategic warning on technologies or capabilities that are leaving the country so that you could have done a $2 billion chips act 20 years ago, not a 25 or $50 billion chips act, you know, 10 years after the fact?
1: Yeah, another great question. So certainly it's the intelligence community's job, right? to be able to say to the president and um, her or his, her or his um, national security team, um, here's where the Chinese are on these key technologies. The intelligence community has always been incredibly reluctant to do a net assessment, right? To say, okay, here's where the Chinese companies are, but are they better or are they worse than US companies? And what areas are they ahead and what areas are they behind? the ICs never liked to do that on any issue. Um, I think they're going to have to get over that that hurdle and actually start doing that assessments.
0: Mm-hmm. Michael, earlier in our conversation, you talked about companies that rely on Chinese markets, and we're talking about shoring up critical capabilities and looking at our supply chain for these vulnerabilities. I'm curious for your take on globalization. What's that going to look like in the next 10 years, given the national security threat landscape?
1: It depends on where this where this relationship ends up right I mean one of the ways I think about the US China relationship is 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 it can be somewhere on on a spectrum right and at one end of the spectrum is um, cooperation the kinda cooperation we saw between Barack Obama and Xi Jinping on climate change the last year of Barack Obama's presidency you know that was a really good thing and you kinda move along on the spectrum and you have healthy competition Healthy economic competition, healthy diplomatic competition. The world's better off, right, for that healthy competition. And then you move along and you get into um, mistrust, which we certainly have today with each other. And then you get into unhealthy competition. What does that look like? Well, that's China stealing intellectual property. That's China, you know, squeezing squeezing people for technology who want to do business in China. It's the U.S. putting tariffs on right? I mean, that's unhealthy competition. The world's world's worse off for that, right? And then you go to the far end of the spectrum and you have conflict, actual war, right? And it's not impossible. The probability of war between the United States and China is not zero over the next 25 years. It's not high, but it's not zero. So where do you want to be on that spectrum, right? And I think if both, if you took politics out of the equation in the United States and you took politics in the form of nationalism off the table in China, and you had two statesmen as leaders and they actually sat down and talked about my spectrum, they would agree that it's better to be at this end than at this end, right? The, the cooperation, healthy competition, end, then the unhealthy competition and conflict, they would agree, right? But politics here for sure, Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan is a great example of that That's politics. Um, is an and nationalism in China right um, and what they think about us um, and what they think we're trying to do to them contain them right is pulling us in the wrong direction so it really depends on where we end up if we end up in a better place then this decoupling that people talk about will be minimal it will really be on the most important national security matters but if we end up at the wrong end of the spectrum then decoupling will go much further right? And you could end up in a situation where there are really two poles, two economic poles in the world, you know, one China, one the U.S. with different countries kind of spinning around those poles. So it it really depends on what happens to that relationship over the next 20, 25 years.
0: Mm -hmm. And do you think the sense of urgency around this issue is hurting our collaboration with allies and from an international perspective, or is it in fact speeding up our, our strategy there?
1: Depends on the allies, right? Um, there are allies who who feel incredibly vulnerable to China, um, and are willing to sign up, you know, with us, sign on the dotted line, right? Uh, for for a long, long time, Australia is the, the poster child for that, right? Or the UK, um, Canada, uh, South Korea, Japan. Um, but then there's a bunch of other countries who feel stuck in the middle. In fact, most countries feel stuck in the middle. I was in a conversation, um, I don't know, year and a half, two years ago with um, diplomats from Malaysia, Thailand, Singapore, and we were talking about this, this, you know, being pulled in two different directions. And the guy from, the diplomat from Singapore said, Michael, it's really, 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 really important that you understand three things. One is every country in East Asia, and you can probably make this every country in the world wants to be friends with the United States. You know, a couple of exceptions, Iran, North Korea, Belarus, Russia Today, right? But every country, most, the vast majority of countries want to be friends with the United States. Two, no country wants to be an enemy of China. And three, for those people who sit in China's backyard, or or I'd broaden that out to those, those, those countries that are dependent economically on China, if those countries ever have to make a choice between being our friends and being China's, China's enemy, it's easy. They're going to go with not being China's enemy, right? Because of where they sit geographically and where their economic interests lie. Fascinating.
2: So, so Michael, you've been out now for a while. Yeah, yeah.
1: almost ten years.
2: Isn't, it hard, isn't it hard to believe how how time flies. I'm almost at a year, and I think it was you know uh, yesterday. What what's your take on what are you seeing out there in the private world? What you know, I think in government for a long time you think you understand what's going on in the private sector. Either in the way they operate or the things they're thinking about, yeah. And then I've I've been you know I've had plenty of interesting strategic surprises of my own getting out. What what's you know what are observations you've made now being out for a little while? What surprised you the most, and what's maybe energizing you the most? What
1: surprised me the most was that I could negotiate. <laughs> right, as a government employee, they say you know this is this is how much you're going to make, and you say yes. Right, everything's negotiable, right, in the private sector, which is which is terrific. But I think, from you know, in in, in terms of stuff that really matters here, one is it's h- hard to overstate the frustration of CEOs with doing business with the government, particularly the CEOs of startups. You know, the CEOs of primes, you know, much less so, right? Um, but the CEOs of startups, and I. You know, my sense is we were talking about the industrial base earlier. I, I I kind of break the industrial base into two pieces. One is the traditional industrial base, right, which has been eroded, um, as you guys know. Um, one of the reasons we can't supply the weapons and the quantity that the Ukrainians need is we can't make it fast enough, right, because our industrial base is eroded. So we have to worry about the, that traditional industrial base. That's the That's the... That's the primes, right? Those are the big primes. They know how to do that really well. But I also think this new industrial base that, that is that sits around these key technologies is really the startup world. It really is, right? And they haven't figured out how to play in, a, in, in, in this big, big lake, right? There's organizations like yours right that try to help them do that, which is absolutely terrific. But we have to we have to help them, fertilize that new industrial base, right, for this, to, for this to actually work. So that's one. Two is, and you don't want frustrated CEOs because they'll go off and do something else, right? They're not going to hang around if, if it takes three years to get, you know, a security approval, right? Um, I think two is, two is, um, with very, very few exceptions, investors don't give a damn about national security. They talk a good game, but when it, time, when it comes time to put their money on the table, it is about returns. Period. So, what does that mean? It means that if we're going to succeed at at capital going to the right places from a national security perspective, we have to make it economically viable to do so. Um, and 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 the government there are things the government can do that can help do that. That's and and that surprised me a little bit, right? Um, that surprised me a little bit. You
0: talk about attracting capital and the importance of technology, but at the end of the day. It's really important that we have people aligned here, and and something we like to hit on is how to stimulate more interest in talent in contributing to the national security space, both from the private sector, but also to serve. And so, you told your story, Michael, about how you got in. Um, what's your take on the outlook for talent here, and particularly to go in and out of the private sector to the public sector? Do you do you see that as a, a challenge ahead, or are we making improvements from that perspective?
1: Let me. Let me. It's a great question. Uh, maybe, it, maybe it's the most important question because at the end of the day, people create the tech and the tech's just not, the tech by itself isn't what wins, right? Execution at the end of the day is what, what wins, right? So people matter tremendously. I, I'd go way back to the beginning. Um, our public education system is broken. Now, I don't know how to fix it. You know, I have no idea how to fix it. I, I just look at the numbers and we're at the bottom of the OECD, you know, in nearly every educational category. I, I don't know how we can be a high-tech economy you know, when our kids are at the bottom in math and science. So somebody's got to do something about that. Again, I have no idea, but that is a huge issue, I think. Two is people want to live in America. You know, if you say to, to most people in, in, in the world, if you're going to move somewhere, some other country, where do you want to move, right? The United States is at the top of that list. And I think we should be very aggressive in um finding the best talent in the world and bringing it here. I'm, I'm going to use this word. Don't take it the wrong way. I used to hunt people for a living, right? I used to, you know, find, find, find assets, right? Who could spy for the United States. I could find drug traffickers and terrorists. And you know, so I hunted people, I think we need a program to hunt talent in the rest of the world, hunt tech talent, and then go and offer them, you know, um, a green card to come to the United States. Um, you know, these kids who graduate, right? There's a lot of people who talk about, you know, when they get the graduation, they get a green card. Absolutely. It's a no-brainer, right? And we should do that. Um, so we should, we should try to attract the best talent to the United States. There's, there's, there's all these Russian kids, you know, hundreds of thousands of them, well-educated, um, technically savvy, who have now left Russia and I don't believe will ever go back. How do we get them to come here? How do we get to come here and, 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 and work right in, uh, in our tech fields, right? So we should have an aggressive program to do that. Um, and then the third really gets to your question, Lauren, which is how do we get folks in the private sector to want to spend some time in government? Because the, the tech maturity, um, the tech understanding, the tech awareness is pretty bad. And so how do we elevate that? You know, when I, the last year I left the agency, the attrition rate was 3%. And those are mostly retirements, you know, which is actually a really good thing because people who come to work there want to stay for a career because the work is so rewarding. But, you know, as a leader of the organization, I said to myself, this is way too low, right? Because it doesn't allow for a fl- flow of new blood in the organization, right? So I think we need programs that, that allow that tech talent to come in fairly easily, and leave if they want, right? So, so what I advocated to Director Burns um, when he was thinking about how to improve tech at the agency was the White House Fellows Program is a, is, is a really effective program where you bring in the most talented people in the country and the White House puts them in different, different places in the executive branch. I don't know if it's a year or two years or what it is, um, but they give, they give back to their country and lo and behold a chunk of them decide to stay and make it a career, right? Because just cause it's just so interesting. I, I, I told the director, we need, a, we, we need a, 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 a CIA tech fellows program, right? That brings in 250 Stanford graduates and MIT graduates, right? Every year to give a year back to their country. And, you know, a bunch of them will stay. And those who don't will go back and say nice things about the CIA. So I think you have to come up with creative programs.
2: Yeah, Absolutely. And and getting them in, whether it's, you know, the right programs in public education or, or these policies you're talking about, it's a, it's a good first step, but it's not the final step. Uh, I'm sure you can think back in your career of somebody who mentored you, the professor you talked about, or, you know, shaped your trajectory in a way that wouldn't have happened otherwise. What's, what's your thinking on mentorship? Can you recall a situation like that? Because I think... Not only do we have to bring them in, then we've got to figure out how to uh, let them achieve their maximum potential and and help help them along the way like certainly uh, I've had along my career
1: so i had I had many many mentors um, along the way um I would not have been successful without them. Um, the most important mentor that I ever had um, started mentoring me when when I was a young supervisor and he is still a mentor to me today. Um, and I still talk to him. Um, so that's, you know, and, and, and I, I tried to do that as well. When I was, um, when I was a senior in government, I still mentor some people who, who, you know, are at CIA. Um, when I was deputy director, I tried really hard to mentor, um, women in particular, um, and I think I was successful at it. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it's, it's really important to allow yourself to be mentored, right? Which is to open yourself up. And then it's really important to mentor. So, um, it's part of that. It's part of that education process we are just talking about.
2: Yeah. And it's certainly a two way street. I think many, many younger, uh, teammates, you know, feel, oh, you know, he's too busy or she's too busy to go ask him. And, and quite frankly, I've learned more from folks I've had the fortune to mentor than I think I've ever imparted on them. And so for those in the audience, you know, never be shy about asking, right. asking to, you know, meet with somebody yeah. uh, and mentor them. I find many are, they, uh, you know, they don't actually even
1: make the ask. Yeah. But here's what I would say to people, right. Is, is, um, is people would come to me, particularly young people and say, and they still do and say, "Will you mentor me. And my answer is sure. Absolutely. What do you want to work on? Right. Just, it just, don't come in and say mentor me right what in particular do you want to work on Do you want to work on your leadership skills do you want to work on you know whatever but 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 you know have a specific goal in mind that we can work toward
2: yeah i think you know i often tell folks you know job of a mentor is not to make the person in the form of the mentor it's the for the mentor to help the person achieve whatever goal they want right and right. you know we're, we're not all here to create clones and so that's you a know,
1: i wouldn't want anybody to be a clone of me yeah.
2: <laughs> So so let me, let me just loop back a little bit in this unique time with Ukraine and probably the first time many folks have seen at-scale commercial technologies impacting the battlefield. I would say some of that happened during uh, counterterrorism activities, but certainly not to the scale and not as publicly as you're seeing here. What's your, what's your take on that? Is, that? is this a fundamental shift in commercial entities, one, both being on the front lines, and then two, impacting the front lines?
1: Sure. We're because we're in a new world. Now we're in a world where, um, where, you know, open source data is readily available. Um, commercially acquired data is readily available. You know, most of the time you have to pay for it, but you know, it's not that expensive. Um, and so there is all this new data available, right? Um, and this is, this is something else that the intelligence community needs to get its arms around, right? Because the culture, the culture of intelligence organizations, if it is if it's not stamped top secret, right, it must not be worth anything, right? Um, but as you see in Ukraine, this stuff is actually really useful, right? So I think that 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 the availability of both information in a way publicly that's never been like this before, and um, technology in a way that's never been like this before, has created what we're seeing in Ukraine and. Um, you know, if governments were smart, they would adapt themselves, right, to what's happening um, in the world around them. And I think some of them are pretty slow at that.
2: Yeah, I can imagine it's quite a culture shift on the Intel floor of, of you know, is it, you know, 90% TS and, you know, 10% open source now or commercially available now. I imagine those are all shifting and then the yeah, culture is yeah. going to have to shift with it. Yeah, yeah.
0: And as Hondo said, it's been amazing to watch all of the companies really step up to bat and try to help here, even if it's informally sharing information or really wanting to help, which in a post-Snowden world or even five years ago, that wasn't the case. This strong, I think, trust between communities or uh, appreciation for prosperity in the private sector side. So some of the issues you talked about today, Michael, I think will really help us strengthen that collaboration whether it's working between companies selling into government or this talent issue that we've talked about to have more cross-pollination. But these are some, some great ideas that you shared today. I'm wondering any final thoughts or anything we didn't ask that you'd like to talk about?
1: You know, one thing I'd say is something um, maybe a little contrarian, including to what I said earlier. I'm beginning to wonder if historians are going to look back at where we are right now and are going to conclude that we over worried the China problem. Um, just like we over worried the Japan problem, we over worried to some extent the Soviet problem. There are trends underway, right, that really raise questions about China's ability to continue to grow in influence relative to us. You know, one is they've got a whole basket of systemic issues that, that they're working on but are gonna be really difficult to deal with, right? Demographics is by far the, the absolute worst for them, um, but there's others, and so you have that. Um, and then the second bucket is you've got the fact that they are stepping away from capitalism. Capitalism is what created the Chinese economic miracle. It's what brought you know hundreds of million people out of poverty. Um, you know, take that, those people who don't like capitalism. Um, you know capitalism is what created China's influence in the world and Xi Jinping for political reasons is stepping back away from that so when he first came to power he froze economic reforms and now he's actually rolling them back and that is going to cost China economically and he's doing it because he's worried about you know the future of the communist party which is his number one his number one issue it's not China's role in the world—it's his, his own, it's his own neck and his party's neck—and then third, the world is starting to get its act together relative to China. So we're starting—we're starting as a group of nations to face China and say, you know what, we don't like that behavior. So you really wonder, right? Um, is China going to continue to gain relative to the United States in influence in the world? What we've seen in the last 20 years, or is it really going to start slowing down, and we're going to reach some sort of equilibrium, or maybe even? We're going to move in the other direction, because we're because at the end of the day we're a stronger nation for our values.
0: And Michael, that, that reminds me of a piece you wrote maybe four or five years ago. I think it was in the Cipher Brief where you kind of gave an outlook from an, a Chinese intelligence analyst per, perspective. Yeah. Do you think you, the U.S. is top of mind for them sure, these days? Absolutely,
1: or? but I don't think they believe what I just said. Right? I think they're still in the. Um, the U.S. is in decline and, um, you know, we're still in the ascendancy. So I don't think they've, they've adjusted to what I've just said. Hard for them, right? Hard for them to argue that their boss is doing the wrong thing. Um, the other thing I'd say, which I think is really, really important, um, is all the things that we talked about that we need to do, um, those things aren't possible in our current political environment. So if we don't get our politics right here, and I'm not taking any sides at all, um, both sides are at fault, if we can't get our politics in order here, then you can forget about everything we talked about. And in that case, it might be um, um, not a race to the top between China and the United States, but a, you know, who's, who's not going to get to the bottom first? So you know, the, the most important thing we need to do is strengthen our democracy and strengthen our politics so that we can start making decisions that advance our national security and our society and our economy.
0: Wow. Well, so many important issues, Michael, that you hit on today. And thank you so much for taking the time. I think one of the strongest takeaways I have is the importance of a strategy. And I think that's on all sides of the equations that we talk about, whether it's from the financial world or the tech companies that we're working with and on the government side um, and trust and strong collaboration between them, uh, given this this uh, global outlook. So thank you so much for You're taking welcome. the time yes, today, me. Michael.
2: Great to have you, Michael.
0: You've been listening to Building the Base a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.